podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. This is a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. We have a jam-packed episode for you as we start the international break. On today's episode, in part one, we're going to assess Napoli's transfer window, we'll review Napoli Feminile's match day four game against Inter, and we'll recap the second round of Serie B. In part two, we'll cover in great detail all that unfolded over the weekend between Juventus and Napoli. And in part three, we'll recap the rest of the action from match day three. So let's start with the transfer window. Napoli were very busy in the final days. Our biggest move at the end of the window was the signing of Timue Bakayoko on a dry loan from Chelsea. This is a spectacular signing in my opinion. Bakayoko will fill the void left by Alain, who was sold to Everton for about 25 million euros. This is an attractive deal for a few reasons. First, Chelsea are paying half of his salary. Second, he had his best season under Gattuso, so the player and the manager know each other well, and obviously if Gattuso was willing to sign him, then whatever tension they had before has to have been sorted out. Bakayoko seems pretty happy to be in training with the club already. Third, Bakayoko has different qualities compared to Demen Lobotka, specifically his size, so just like in the attack, we now have a diverse set of midfielders that Gattuso can choose from to take advantage of his opponent's weaknesses. And fourth, there is no commitment here. The clubs will speak again in 12 months, but if it doesn't work out, then Napoli can simply walk away. We also completed a number of loans before the window closed. Amin Yunus joined Eintracht Frankfurt on a two-year loan with option to buy. Adam Unas joined Cagliari on a loan with option to buy. Unas told Tuto Mercato Web that Marco Rogue convinced him to make the move. Sebastiano Luperto has joined Crotone on a season-long loan. And Amato Cicciretti has joined Chievo Verona on a loan in Serie B. Of course, at the start of the window, we signed Victor Osiman. Osiman ended up being the most expensive signing in Serie A. Most lists have Artur as the most expensive, but we all know that both Juventus and Barcelona inflated their respective players' values so they could record higher gains. Osiman was also the second most expensive signing in all of Europe behind Kai Havertz, who signed with Chelsea. Napoli's biggest weakness heading into this window was the attack when you consider the drop-off in goals we suffered last season, and the signing of Osman already appears to be delivering returns. Napoli have scored 8 goals in their 2 games played. While Osman has not scored any goals himself, his teammates are benefiting from the space that he creates, and he's picked up a few assists as well. So those are the players that have come in and out. Of course, that means that a number of players were not sold. Despite Juntoli's best efforts, we were not able to sell Arkadus Milik. I'd say that is equally on the player and the club. Napoli overvalued Milik when negotiating with Juventus and insisted on cash rather than a player swap. Ultimately, the two clubs were never able to find an agreement, which was fine because you don't want to make a bad deal with the reigning champions and potentially improve their squad more than you improve your own. Juve were trying to include their dead weight in the deal to lower the cost, which we never went for. Then the table seems set for a move to Roma, but outstanding fines got in the way, supposedly related to naming rights and Malik using his own image 
for a restaurant that he owns in Poland. Again, the silver lining of not making this move is that Juve don't improve their squad because arrangements had been made for Roma to sell Eden Dzeko to Juventus immediately after acquiring Milik, so Juve were forced to sign Alvaro Morata instead, who was not their preferred option. A number of Premier League clubs, including Everton, Tottenham, and Newcastle, also expressed interest, but nothing materialized there either. And finally, a last-ditch effort with Fiorentina fell through. A move to Fiorentina seemed like the best case for Napoli. Fiorentina appeared ready to take Milik on loan for a year, with an obligation to buy for 20 million euros, but Napoli would first have to extend Milik for a year. So the return would have been pretty good for us, and we wouldn't have been improving our biggest rival squad. However, even though he knew he had no place in Gattuso's plans, Milik blocked the deal. So Milik has now returned to Poland, where he will sit out at least the first half of the season, and perhaps the entire season, unless Napoli are able to sell him in January, albeit for a significantly reduced price. Napoli lose out both on the transfer fee, and in having to pay his 2.5 million euro salary while he sits at home. The other big name we didn't sell was Kaladu Koulibaly. At the end of the day, this was the correct decision. Now, I'm not changing my position on this. I maintain that this was the right time to sell, but it only made sense to sell if we got the right offer and that offer never came. Man City never offered more than 65 million euros and PSG didn't even come close to that. Koulibaly was grossly undervalued by Premier League clubs and supporters alike. He easily would have been a top 5, maybe even a top 3 center back in all of the Premier League. I get that he's 29, going on 30, but defenders have a longer shelf life, especially with his level of fitness. If Harry Maguire can go for the price that he did, then why shouldn't Koulibaly? Now, Maguire sold pre-COVID, and ultimately that's what's hurting Koulibaly's value. He had a tough season last year, but he's come back at the start of this season and looked very good. Too many clubs simply can't afford to pay the price that Napoli wants, but we know his true value. He loves this city and this club. He has plenty of European experience, he was incredibly professional with the club trying to sell him, and he can be a mentor for a younger center back like Amir Rachmani. So unless we got a mega offer, which simply doesn't exist right now, it makes more sense to keep Koulibaly. I must admit though, I did enjoy seeing City allow 5 goals to Leicester and United allow 6 goals to Tottenham, and Liverpool allow 7 goals to Villa. Another player we did not sell is Nikola Maksimovic. Like Milik, his contract expires at the end of this season. I imagine renewing his contract will become a priority between now and the winter transfer window. That doesn't necessarily mean that he'll stay, but it would buy Napoli time to make a sale. In order to do that though, Napoli will likely have to pay Maxi more than he currently makes, otherwise he could simply walk on a free, so it will be interesting to see how this one plays out. We also didn't sell Fernando Llorente, despite Claudio Ranieri trying to convince him to join Sampdoria, and Kevin Malqui and Fauzi Goulam also remain with the club. Now there were a couple of positions we wanted to address heading into this window and in a way we have addressed them but not through transfers. One of those positions was the wing. I really wanted Jeremy Boga and after Insigne picked up his injury I still did want Boga. However Lozano has had such a strong start to the season and with most people having ridden him off after a tough first season it feels like he's a new signing so the need on the wing addressed itself. Similarly, left back was an issue, and to an extent it still is. Sergio Regulon would have been a great signing, but Mario Rui is coming off an excellent season, and even Elsie Kusai has been in decent form lately. Kusai also has the flexibility to play on both sides, which is something that's very important to Gattuso, so I think he'll be a player that Napoli tried to renew. It's not really a transfer, but Jose Callejon is now a Fiorentina player, which is a little bit bittersweet for me. 
It will be very weird to see him wearing purple, but for everything he's given us, I do wish him the best. And former Napoli player Edinson Cavani has signed with Manchester United. At one point, he was rumored to a return to Napoli, and when other clubs inquired about him, he said he could only play for one club in Italy. So with that, here is our final 25-man roster that was published on the Lega Serie A website. Our goalkeepers are Alex Meret, David Ospina, Nikita Contini. Our centre-backs are Kaladu Koulibaly, Kostas Manolas, Nikola Maksimovic, and Amir Rachmani. Our full-backs are Giovanni Di Lorenzo, Mario Rui, Elsie Kisai, Kevin Malqui, and Fauzi Gulam. We now have three holding midfielders in Diego Demis, Stanislav Lobotka, and Nautia Moi Bakayoko, who, like Alain, can also play in an attacking role. Our attacking midfielders are Fabian Ruiz, Piotr Zielinski, and Elif Elmas. On the wings, we have Lorenzo Insigne, Chucky Lozano, Matteo Politano, and if need be, Elmas can play on the wing as well. And finally, at striker, we have Dries Mertens, Victor Osimhen, and Andrea Patania. Meret, Di Lorenzo, Zielinski, and Patania count as locally trained players. Contini and Insigne count as club trained, and Osimhen and Elmas are on our under-22 list. If I had to give Napoli a grade out of 10 for this transfer window, I would go with an 8. I think most of the rebuilding commenced in January, so there was less to do in the summer. We made a big splash on Osman, and because our finances are in order, we didn't need to take low-ball offers for other players. That said, we failed to complete a sale of Milik and Maksimovic to an extent, though I think Maksimovic can be salvaged with a renewal. I contemplated a grade of 7.5 for not being able to sell so many other players, but I think a lot of that has to do with the market right now because of COVID. In other news, our ladies returned to Serie A action on Saturday after an international break followed by Coppa Italia. We picked up our first point in Serie A with a 1-1 draw against Inter, but then on Wednesday the result was changed to a 3-0 loss. The official note from the FIGC identified a few violations. First, the club's social doctor must be on the bench and Napoli's doctor was not. And they noted that this is not the referee's responsibility to confirm because obviously the match was still played. Second, clubs must have a minimum of 11 young players that meet certain requirements and Napoli had only 10. In addition to the loss, one of Napoli's executives, Sara Sibilia, was suspended until December 7, 2020. So the result is irrelevant, but I do still want to review the match because it was only our fourth, so it's still good insight into the quality of the club. As I said, we played Inter, we lined up in a 4-4-2. Catalina Perez got her first start in goal over regular starter Emeline Mengi. Elisabetta Oliviero and Federica De Crisio started at center back. Paolo Di Marino started at right back and Emma Erico started at left back. In the midfield, the new signing Jacinta Galabadarashki made her debut next to Sarah Hushet in the midfield. Isota Noki played right wing and Federico Cafaretta played left wing. And up top was our usual attacking duo of Jenny Hulman and Despoña Chatsinikolao. Inter were the better side in the first half. Eva Bartonova opened the scoring in the 12th minute from a corner kick. She placed her header inside the far post to give Inter the 1-0 lead. Napoli were the far better side in the second half, though. Oliveira nearly equalized, but Inter keeper Roberta Aprile did well to keep the ball out. Huchet came close as well, but her header hit the upright and stayed out. It was only a matter of time before Napoli scored the equalizer, though. It came in the 52nd minute after Huchet won possession on the left wing in Inter's half. Di Crisio played an in-swinging cross with her left foot toward the back post. Hillman got their first and touch pass Aprile to make the score 1-1. Chetsi Nicolau nearly put Napoli ahead, but her header hit the bar. With all the chances we had in the second half, Napoli were probably disappointed with the result. Obviously, we lose that single point, but the punishment probably would have been harsher had we won this match and had to give up all three points. 
Napoli's U19 squad kicked off their Primavera Dua campaign on Saturday as well. Unfortunately, it didn't go too well. Giuseppe Ambrosino scored Napoli's only goal in a 4-1 defeat to Lecce. Finally, the second round of Serie B was played over the weekend. Salernitana beat Chievo 2-1. Napoli owned Gennaro Tutino scored a goal in that one. Lecce beat Ascoli 2-1. Monza, who spent 51 million euros in the summer transfer window, which is massive for a Serie B side, drew Empoli nil-nil. Regina beat Pescara 3-1 and Jeremy Menes scored again for Regina. Spal drew Cosenza 1-1. Frosinone beat Venezia 2-0 and Reggiana beat Tantella 2-0. Vicenza drew Pordenone 1-1 so my pick to win Serie B Pordenone is off to a slow start with two draws. Cremonese drew Pisa 1-1 and Cittadella beat Brescia 3-0 so Massimo Cellino sacked Gigi Del Neri and brought back Diego Lopez. Meanwhile, after only two matches, Cittadella are the only club with a perfect record. So that will do for part one. In part two, we'll talk about Napoli's match that wasn't played over the weekend and all the craziness around that story. Normally in part 2 of the first episode of the week we review Napoli's match over the weekend, but as you might have heard this match was not played. Now, if you are tracking this story online, and especially on Twitter, you might still be spinning. The updates were coming fast and furious, the judgments and speculation were coming even quicker, and all of that was muddied by a ton of false reporting. So I thought I'd use this time to set the record straight. I obviously have an opinion on all of this as a Napoli fan, but I'm going to do my best to be as objective as I can here, and I'd like to say that I'm going to stick to the facts, but the truth is we may not ever have all the facts. All I can do is stick to what has been reported in the media, and trust me, there have been a lot of reports out there. I have sifted through everything I could read over in the last few days, but like I said, there were a lot of reports, so forgive me if I've missed anything. Also, some of this was covered in our bonus episode with Mauro Russo and Michael Bonadiman, so if you've already listened to that, then you will have heard this first part of the story already, but that was recorded on Saturday evening, and a lot has happened since then. Okay, so really this story starts about two weeks ago, September 26th to be precise. That was the day before Napoli's first home match of the season played against Genoa. On that day, Genoa coach Rolando Maran confirmed that goalkeeper Mattia Perin had tested positive for COVID-19 and would not be traveling with the team. The match was moved from its original start time of 3pm local time to 6pm local time to give Genoa time to complete an additional round of tests before traveling to Campania. The first round of tests completed on the evening of the 26th came back negative, 
Another round of tests were completed a few hours later, and on the afternoon of the 27th local time, which was game day, but before the team traveled, Genoa confirmed that Lassie Shona had tested positive as well. Now, the protocols do say that if someone tests positive, they can be isolated, and so long as everyone else has had two negative tests, which they did, they are permitted to travel. The day after the match, Genoa confirmed that their latest round of tests confirmed an additional 12 positive tests, consisting of 9 players and 3 staff, bringing the total to 14 cases. On the 30th, Genoa released the names of the players and staff who had tested positive, and added that one additional player tested positive, bringing the count to 15. Four of those players, Marco Piaccia, Lucas Laraguer, Davide Zapacosta, and Federico Marchetti, played the full 90 minutes against Napoli. Luca Pellegrini played 54 minutes, and the new addition to the list, Valon Berami, played 26 minutes off the bench. By the 2nd of October, Genoa's positive cases had reached 19, so let me pause there for a second. The reason I've covered Genoa's cases in such detail is not to suggest that Napoli got the virus from Genoa. That's something that I think is being falsely reported or perhaps assumed. As far as I'm aware, there's no empirical evidence to suggest that Genoa in fact passed the virus to Napoli. In fact, the information we currently have suggests the opposite. Two episodes ago, we reported how Massimo Galli, the director of the infectious disease department at the Gallo Hospital in Milan, explained that though football is a contact sport, the likelihood of transmitting in-match is low. I'm more inclined to think that Zielinski's case was not contracted from Genoa. However, the reason I covered the Genoa situation is because I think how the virus spread at Genoa is still relevant to the discussion a little bit later. Now, on the 1st of October, with the virus continuing to spread at Genoa, Lega Serie A introduced some new rules that were intended to contain the spread of the virus, including the following. If one or more players test positive, but the club in question can still field a squad of 13 registered players, including a keeper, then their match will be played according to the schedule, in other words, it won't be postponed. If that team does not show up for the match, they suffer a 3-0 defeat, and if a team has 10 or more positive cases in 7 days, as happened with Genoa, the subsequent match is automatically postponed. On Friday, October 2nd, Napoli confirmed that Piotr Zielinski and team staffer Giandomenico Costi tested positive, so immediately questions arose about whether Napoli's match against Juventus should be postponed. An additional round of tests were completed on Saturday morning local time, and Saturday evening local time, Napoli confirmed that Elif Elmas tested positive as well. The local health authority then sent a letter to the club, By the way, whenever you hear the term ASL, that means local health authority. ASM is an acronym for Azienda Sanitaria Locale, which literally translates to local health authority. In this letter, sent from the director of the ASL in the central Napoli region, the ASL advises the club that anyone who has been in close contact with Piotr Zielinski must observe and respect the fiduciary isolation for 14 days. The letter goes on to list who those close contacts were, and not surprisingly, it's essentially the entire team that trained with Zelinsky and some of the staff. Let me pause again here to address some of the rumors around this. First, a number of people online were suggesting that this was all De Laurentiis is doing. De Laurentiis has publicly supported the current president of the Campania region, Vincenzo De Luca. I don't think I can change the minds of anyone who thinks that De Laurentiis has influenced the ASL to issue this order to quarantine. What I will say is that I have not come across any evidence to suggest that this in fact is the case. Genoa president Enrico Preziosi didn't help with this situation either. He told Radio Capital that the local ASL intervened and bypassed the protocol which has resulted in great chaos. He added that anyone who asks the local ASL for advice will be told not to travel. So by asking, the Laurentiis put the championship at risk. 
When he was asked if it's mandatory to contact the ASL, Preziosi said Genoa did not because they only had two cases, and that the protocol provided that if they had at least 10 cases, they could ask for the match to be suspended. Consequently, Preziosi suggested that De Laurentiis contacted the ASL, not vice versa, and without saying it explicitly, he suggested that De Laurentiis did this because he did not want the match to be played. Now, those comments didn't go over too well with Minister of Sport Vincenzo Spadafora. He told Corriere della Sera that the protocol provides for the supervision and responsibility of the local health authorities. He added that communication to the ASL is a legal obligation and that he is rather concerned about the statements of those who say they have not made them immediately, obviously referring to Preziosi. The general manager of the ASL Napoli Uno, Ciro Verdoliva, was asked by the messenger whether the ASL was solicited by the club and he said absolutely not. He spoke to Rai where he elaborated on the process. He said the correspondence between ASL Napoli Uno and the Napoli club began on October 2nd when the positivity of two members of the company was reported. The day after we received confirmation from ASL Napoli Duen Nord, which is responsible for the residence of the player Zelinski of close contacts, we had a long list and there the protocol was triggered, which in a legal logic sees the safeguarding of the health of the community and of the individual as prejudicial. So with respect to the circular of the Ministry of Health and the ISS, what are for us confinements, that is the quarantine of close contacts, what we have been doing since last February for everyone. A lot of people were speculating that De Laurentiis' motive for trying to reschedule the match was because Napoli would have played without Insigne, Zelinski, and Elmas. Again, I can't say whether that was in fact De Laurentiis' intent. No one really knows but him. However, you could argue that Napoli had a better chance of winning this match if it were played on Sunday than later in the season. Juve are coming off of a draw to Roma. Pirlo still only managed two matches in his entire career. The Ligt is out. Dybala just returned and hasn't played a competitive match in a while. And Napoli have a ton of depth. So I think it's a bit presumptuous to say that De Laurentiis did not want to play this match. Now, it is true that De Laurentiis wanted to postpone the match, Agnelli confirmed in his post-match conference that De Laurentiis messaged him. Agnelli said he responded that Juventus will follow the rules as they always do, which of course caused social media to erupt. Another debate that was happening online was whether a travel ban had been imposed on the club. The report we originally heard was that the club got on the bus and went to the airport, and when they got there, they were told they could not travel. That was important because there were also reports that if a travel ban is imposed by a government authority, then the match must be postponed. Now, I've been trying to find the official document that specifically says this, but I could not. It seems to me that we're relying on a line from the new rules I mentioned earlier. It says that these new rules are exceptional and limited to the current 2020-21 season, regardless of the provision of other rules and or regulations applicable to the individual competition. And here's the important part, without prejudice to any provisions of the state or local authorities, as well as the FIGC. In other words, the new Serie A rules are not intended to be detrimental to any provisions of the state or local authorities, which presumably includes the ASLs. I'm going to come back to this because this is essentially at the root of all the confusion, but I want to finish out how this played out first. Not long after the report surfaced about the travel ban, new reports surfaced that the ASL did not impose a ban. Verdoliva commented on this as well. He said, We reconfirmed today at Napoli that the players and the technical staff are in quarantine and therefore cannot leave the declared domicile. We haven't talked about anything else. We, for the rest, do not intervene on the possible transfers of quarantine subjects. It is not within our competence. We do not enter into the ban of playing the game. 
we have done what we have done for thousands of other citizens. What if they breach their obligation? A citizen who contravenes the health provisions is subject to administrative sanctions, and as there is a pandemic, different crimes can also be configured. Now, you might ask, if a team is in quarantine, how in the world are they supposed to travel? The answer to that lies in the June 18th, 2020 protocol. It says that if a player tests positive, anyone who has been in contact with that player must quarantine for 14 days. However, so long as that player is isolated and all the other players test negative, the team is permitted to travel to compete, and then they resume their quarantine when they return. It seems like so long ago now, but this was the most important clause for the protocol and the one that the government took the longest to agree to. Prior to agreeing, the government wanted a 14-day quarantine period in the event of a positive test, which would have made it impossible to complete the 2019-2020 campaign, or the 2020-21 campaign for that matter. Now, as these stories were breaking, Juventus posted on its social media platforms that they intend to take the field for the match as scheduled. Again, I'm trying to be unbiased, but I do want to point out that if Juventus said here that they don't think it's right to play, or to go one step further, if they said they too will not show up, this match probably gets postponed. You can't give both sides a loss. Instead, by posting that they intend to play, Juve put the pressure on Napoli and on Legacetia. For Napoli, they were left in a position of either traveling to Torino despite the ASL's order to quarantine and risking criminal charges in the process, or suffering a loss. For Legacetia, the pressure was now on them to make a decision that was going to piss somebody off. Either they keep the matches as scheduled, obviously at Napoli's detriment, or they postpone, but then face the wrath of other clubs who had positive COVID tests but still follow the protocol and played. In the latter case, they would also risk setting a new precedent whereby any team who had a positive test could reach out to the local ASL and if they were told to quarantine, then their matches could also be postponed. That, in turn, could jeopardize the entire calendar. Shortly after Juventus made their post, Lega Serie A issued a statement confirming that the match would continue as scheduled. It read, Following Napoli's official request, the Lega Calcio states that the current rules aim to guarantee the health of everybody, the equal treatment for all clubs, and the respect of principles of sportsmanship. The statement of the Campania ASL asked for fiduciary isolation of the close contacts of Piotr Zielinski, Therefore, in this case, it is applied the FIGC protocol agreed with the Technical and Scientific Committee and integrated with the notice of the Italian Health Minister on June 18, 2020. That was not taken into account in the email sent by Vice Head of Cabinet of the Campania region. The same rule was applied to other cases in the past and, for instance, it allowed Torino to play against Atalanta, Milan's trip to Crotone, Genoa's away game at the San Paolo versus Napoli, and Atalanta's home match against Cagliari. Even if there are cases of players in the group who tested positive for coronavirus, the protocol provides certain and mandatory rules that allow games to be played, fielding all the footballers who tested negative through exams undergone within the time range given by the health authorities. The Council of the Lega Calcio did also approve a set of rules that can lead to the postponement of games, only with several cases of players positive to the virus. These conditions can't be applied to the current Napoli case at the moment, and there are no decisions of the local authorities that prevent the game from being played. So, Serie A says that the match must be played. The one fact I want to point out there is there is a key difference between the Genoa case and all the others, namely that the number of positive cases at Genoa spiked, so there was a risk that the same thing could happen with Napoli, and then with Juventus, and eventually the entire league would be shut down. 
What ensued afterwards was truly bizarre. Juventus continued to act as though everything was normal throughout the day. Their social media account posted all their usual stuff. First they announced that it's match day, then they posted their full squad, followed by their starting 11, all the while knowing that Napoli were not going to be there. The team still showed up to the stadium and allowed their 1,000 fans to enter the stadium and sit in the rain. I get that some of this is necessary, but the publicity of all really wasn't necessary. There is a point in time when even if Napoli changed their mind and decided to attend, there simply wasn't enough time to get to the stadium for the match, yet Juventus continued with this charade. Undersecretary of Health Sandra Zampa commented on how the show was very difficult to watch. As of the time of this recording, which is Wednesday afternoon, a decision on this match still currently resides with the sports judge. De Laurentiis has written to the Minister of Health Roberto Speranza and Minister of Sports Vincenzo Spadafora. In the eight-page letter, De Laurentiis attached the key documents and the rulings of the local health authorities. He also cited the postponement of Palermo-Potenza match in Serici. De Laurentiis also says a failure to postpone the match would represent a defeat for all. Therefore, we trust in an intervention by the ministries in order to adopt to every determination necessary to restore order, justice, legality, reasonableness, and respect. There were also reports that the FIGC's prosecutor's office has opened an investigation to validate whether Napoli correctly applied the protocols immediately after Zelensky tested positive. The head of the prosecutor's office, Giuseppe Kine, has also requested a copy of all correspondence between the club, the region, and the ASL. It didn't help that the club quickly deleted the training reports immediately after Zelensky tested positive, and the suspicion is that they did this because the reports showed that the club did not properly apply the COVID protocols after a positive test. However, Napoli's lawyer, Mattia Grassani, told Radio Punto Nuovo that the club is not under investigation. So for now, all we can do is wait for the sport judge to make a decision. If Napoli are given a loss, then undoubtedly the league will be hearing from Grassani again. Meanwhile, the players have returned to Castel Volturno to complete their 14-day quarantine. Unfortunately, on Tuesday, the entire team, outside of Zielinski and Elmas, of course, tested negative. So that will do for Part 2. In Part 3, we'll recap the rest of Match Day 3. Fiorentina and Sampdoria kicked off match day 3 on Friday. Sampdoria shocked Fiorentina with a 2-1 win after losing their first two matches. Qualiarella opened the scoring from the penalty spot, Dusan Valovic equalized in the second half, and Valerio Vedes scored the winner. Fiorentina dominated the opening 10 minutes and it looked like they were heading for a comfortable win, but credit to Samp, they got better as the match wore on and even early on looked threatening on the counterattack. Fiorentina played this match without Frank Ribéry and Eric Pulgar, but that's no excuse. La Viola had chance after chance, especially in the first half. Once again, Christian Kouame failed to score when he probably should have. He had an excellent chance in the 8th minute after a beautiful run and crossed by Giacomo Bonaventura on the right wing. Both keepers played well in this match. Valovic nearly opened the scoring in the 12th minute with a beautiful dipping strike, but Emil Audaro did well to keep it out. 
On the other side, Bartolome Drogovski made a number of quality saves as well. One came in the 36th minute on a diving header from Gaston Ramirez. He also made a couple of big saves on Antonio Candreva in the second half. Dragovski got some help from the bar as well. In the 36th minute, Castrovilli nearly scored an own goal when he need his clearance straight into his own bar. Castrovilli left this match in the 82nd minute with what appeared to be a calf injury. That could be really bad news for Fiorentina. As soon as he went down, Castrovilli called to come off, which is usually the sign of a serious injury, but let's hope that it's not. You hate to see anyone get hurt, but especially these young talents like Castrovilli and Zaniolo. Federico Ceccherini gifted Sampdoria their first goal just before the end of the first half. He pulled Quagliarella down in the box with probably the most obvious shirt pull you're ever going to see. Sampdoria thought they went ahead in the 77th minute, but the goal was ruled off for offside. However, they did go ahead in the 83rd minute on just an amazing goal. Sampdoria looked like they were actually trying to play for the draw. Medi Leris played the ball back to Aldaro. With his first touch, Aldaro played a perfect long ball over the top to pick up Vera's run. Vera controlled the ball beautifully with his first touch, then finished with an audacious lob over a helpless Dragovski to put Sampdoria ahead. Sofian Amrabat started once again, but in a short time with Fiorentina, we have yet to see the form that he showed last season with Hellas Verona, and not surprisingly, with two losses in their first three matches, and one against the Sampdoria team that will probably be fighting for survival, questions are already being asked of Beppe Iacchini. There were supposed to be three matches on Saturday, but because of the outbreak of COVID at Genoa, their match against Torino was postponed. The first match of the day was Sassuolo-Crotone. Sassuolo won on goals from Berardi, a brace from Caputo, including one from the penalty spot, and a late goal from Manuel Locatelli. Crotone's lone goal was scored by Simi, also from the penalty spot. There wasn't a whole lot to analyze from this match. Sassuolo were on the front foot the entire match and were quick to win back possession after losing it. The usual customers did the damage for Sassuolo. Locatelli continues to impress both in terms of his talent and his maturity. He played a gorgeous long ball leading to the first goal, and he does the little things so well. Just before the pass, he calmly touched the ball infield to get past Salvatore Molina. He was also rewarded at the very end of the match for trying to set up Caputo for the tripletta. His pass was blocked, but it came straight back to Locatelli and he put it away. Berardi and Caputo were back at it again and really benefited from some dreadful defending from Crotone. Caputo's second, which sealed the win, was lovely. He had a clear path to the goal on a ball from Berardi after a careless turnover from Crotone. Caputo waited for Alex Cordaz to go down before calmly chipping over him and into the back of the goal. Crotone have now allowed 10 goals in their 3 matches, which is the worst in the league. For a team that also struggles to score, it's going to be a very long season for them before inevitably heading back to Serie B. Finally, it seems Sassuolo cannot go a match without having a goal disallowed. Filip Juricic had a goal ruled out for offside shortly after Caputo's first. The other match on Saturday was Roma against Udinese. Roma won 1-0 on an absolutely gorgeous strike from new signing Pedro, which was his first for Roma. But for me, the story of this match was once again Udinese's inability to score. They've now been shut out in all three of their matches, and it's not for lack of chances. Rodrigo De Paul was finding Kevin Lasagna and Stefano Okaka time and time again, but they just could not finish. Lasagna hit the ball with power a couple of times, but he either missed the target or got too much of it, and his shots were straight at Mirante. Mirante did make a few big saves as well. Just before the break, Lasagna was one-on-one -on -one with Mirante, but Roger Ibanez, who had an excellent match for Roma, managed to catch up to a tired Lasagna and did enough to disrupt his shot, which allowed Mirante to make the save. 
Okaka had a really good chance in the 69th minute after doing really well to Terni Banyas, his shot was just dreadful and completely missed the mark. Mirante made another good save on a snapshot from Fernando Forestieri in the second half. Roberto Pereira picked up right where he left off when he left Udinese, he looked very good. And Roma had a goal disallowed after a lovely move because Mkhitaryan was offside. In the end, it didn't matter with Udinese's inability to score, and Roma have earned their first victory in the Friedkin era. Atalanta kicked off the action on Sunday in the early match against Cagliari. Before the match, Papu Gomez was presented his trophy for being the best midfielder in Serie A last season. This was yet another very entertaining Atalanta match. Ladea won 5-2 on goals from Luis Muriel, Papu Gomez, Mario Pazalic, Duvan Zapata, and Sam Lemaires. Diego Godin scored Cagliari's first in his debut, as you would expect from the corner kick, and Jao Pedro scored the second. For me, this performance was the closest we've seen from Atalanta this season to what we saw from them all of last season. Even though they had won both of their prior matches quite comfortably, I thought in the first half against Torino and throughout the Lazio match, they were not the dominant side we've come to expect. The reason why they won those matches so comfortably was because of how clinical they are in their finishing. This match was a dominant performance from start to finish. The 5-2 scoreline is probably generous to Cagliari. Martin Darun smashed the bar in the first half, and Alessio Cranio made four massive saves in the span of about 15 minutes early in the second half. There was one sequence where Cranio made a great save on Zapata and then probably the save of the year so far on the rebound, which fell to Muriel. Then on the ensuing corner kick, he made another great save to prevent Christian Romero from scoring his first goal in an Atalanta shirt. Papu Gomez scored yet another class goal. In fact, it was a class goal from Atalanta as a whole. If I had to pick one goal to describe Atalanta's identity, this was probably it. They used both sides of the pitch in the buildup, starting on the right and working around to the left. Their passing was crisp. Then you had the strength and hold-up play of Zapata. And finally, you had the quality of Papu, first with the subtle little drop of his shoulder to lose Marco Rog and open up the shot, and then the quality of the finish. We talk about it every week, but it seems there is no team in the league more clinical than Atalanta. Finally, 23-year-old Sam Lemaire scored his first for Atalanta. If this goal is any indication, he could be the latest in a long list of excellent signings by the club. I wouldn't quite say that they uncovered a gem here, not because he's a bad player, but rather because he was coming off an excellent season at PSV, so I'm sure plenty of clubs were already aware of his potential. Lemaire's made a gorgeous step over to set up the shot before finishing at the far post. So Atalanta are a perfect 3-0-0 to start the season, and they've already amassed 13 goals. Inter played Latu in the marquee match of the day on Sunday. This one finished 1-1 on goals from Lautaro Martinez and Sergei Milinkovic-Savic. This was a typical Inter match, other than the Lautaro goal, which is his third in three matches now. The first half was fairly uneventful, and then the second half got a little bit wild. Yaquin Correa returned to the starting 11 for Lazio after he was pulled out of Lazio's last match in warm-ups. Lazio looked strong to start the match, but then they faded. Inter had a very controlled half. In the attack, they passed the ball around patiently, looking to break down the Lazio back line. That was not easy to do with how well Francesco Acerbi played in this match. And, at least in the first half, Inter looked solid at the back. That has been an issue for Inter early in this season. Lazio had a rough half as far as injuries go. Radu was replaced by Bastos in the 16th minute. Then Adam Marusic had to come off in the 34th minute, so Mohamed Farez made his debut in his place. Then just before the break, Bastos picked up a knock, so he was replaced by Marco Parolo. Fortunately for Lazio, you can still make 5 substitutes because Lazio were forced to use 3 in the first half alone. 
Like I said, things got a little wild in the second half. Unfortunately for Interisti, Inter's backline looked very vulnerable again in the second half. Milikovic Savic got in behind Perisic and scored the equalizer. Lazio looked threatening up until Chiro Immobile got the straight red card. That was the right decision in my opinion. You can't swing your arm like that. That's also why Arturo Vidal is a player you love if he's on your team, but a player you hate if he isn't. He's a pest and he was able to draw the reaction from Immobile who fell for the trap. As you would expect, Inter dominated play with the extra man, but couldn't find the back of the goal. They came close in the 86th minute when Brozovic's shot deflected off of Jean-Daniel Akpa Akpro and then hit the upright but stayed out. The match got pretty testy in the final quarter. After the Immobile red card, match official Marco Guida showed 5 yellow cards and 1 red. The red card to Stefano Sensi was by far the worst decision of the match. Sensi barely touched Patrick on the play. That's probably not a foul at all, but it definitely wasn't red. The VAR should have reviewed this and changed the call. On the broadcast, they said that they couldn't help but think that this was a way of leveling the playing field. In other words, it was a makeup call. That doesn't make sense to me either. First, the two fouls were very different. Immobile swung at Vidal. Yes, Vidal provoked it, and maybe he should have been shown two yellows, but I don't think you can say that Vidal deserved more than one, and that's what he was shown. And second, for the most part, with VAR, there's little need to make a makeup call. The whole point of VAR is to get the original call right. At the end of the day, though, Lazio will be pretty content with the point, having suffered so many injuries and a red card, and Inter will probably walk away feeling pretty disappointed with the result. Benevento defeated Bologna 1-0 on a goal from Gianluca Lapadula, who replaced Gabriele Moncini early in the match after Moncini appeared to injure his groin. Benevento had six of their seven newcomers on the pitch for this one, but it was their regular starting keeper that stole the show. Last episode I said it was getting difficult to defend Montipo's play, but it seems as long as he doesn't need to play the ball with his feet, he's still a very, very good keeper. In the 28th minute, he made a brilliant save on Musa Barrow, after Barrow burned both Camille Glick and Luca Calderola with one cut inside, Montipo made an excellent save on Andreas Skovolsen just before the break. Meanwhile, Benevento didn't register a single shot in the first half. Montipo continued his strong play in the second half, kicking out his right foot to foil Skovolsen yet again. Gaetano Letizia nearly opened the scoring in the 66th minute with a cross that was so poor that it found the target. Skorupsi scrambled back to push the ball over the crossbar. However, on the ensuing corner kick, the veteran Lapadula outmuscled the youngster Aaron Hickey before finding the back of the goal. Bologna were very unfortunate in this match. Only a few minutes after that Lapadula goal, Matthias Vanberg equalized on a Bologna corner kick. However, VAR reviewed the play and determined that Lorenzo de Silvestri handled the ball before the goal. This was a terrible decision, especially with the change in the interpretation of the handball rule. I think even with last year's interpretation, this would have been a harsh decision. The Silvestri's arm was close to his body, he didn't make himself unnaturally bigger, but nevertheless the goal was disallowed. Benevento hung on to win 1-0, so Benevento have two wins in their first three matches. The last time Benevento were in Serie A, it took them 20 weeks to get to two wins. Milan played Spezia in the pouring rain in what turned out to be the final match of the round. Milan won 3-0 on goals from Teo Hernandez and a brace from Rafael Leao. This match reminded me a lot of Napoli's win over Parma in the sense that neither side really created much in the first hour or so and then Milan woke up. The only difference was that Pioli didn't change his formation like Gattuso did. Donnarumma made a couple of good saves though for him they were fairly routine. 
One was on a shot from Daniele Verdi in the first half, another on a shot from Kevin Agudello in the second half, but his best save was on his own teammate. In the 21st minute, Davide Calabria attempted to play the ball out but instead steered it straight at his own goal, but Donnarumma reacted quickly to keep it out. Leal made the most of his first start with Ibra still out due to COVID-19 and with Rebic recently injuring his elbow. The first goal was off an excellent cross by Hakan Chalanoglu into a dangerous area. The second was after an excellent header from Frank Kessie back into a dangerous area. Teo Hernandez reminded us that he's still the best left back in Serie A. He is the definition of a modern fullback which is not necessarily a great defender but has the ability to join the attack and score goals. This was a great solo effort to intercept the pass, sprint downfield with the ball at his feet and have the quality to pick the corner. Jens Petter Haug made his debut in the 71st minute replacing Brahim Diaz only 3 days after joining Milan from Norwegian side FK Bodo Glimt and he had a decent 20 minutes. So Milan have started the season with 3 wins, not to take anything away from Milan but those wins were against Bologna, Crotone and Spezia so we do need to see them play against a stronger side before we can truly assess what this Milan team is capable of. That said, it is important to get the job done in these matches and Milan did play this match without a few key players and on short rest after that emotional Europa League qualifier midweek and they fielded their youngest squad in a really long time. The final match of the week was Parma versus Verona. Yasmin Kurtic took only 28 seconds to score in his first match of the season. There were no more goals in the remaining 89 and a half minutes though. Parma did deserve the win which was a first for new owner Kyle Kraus. Jan Karamo came close to scoring for Parma in the 4th minute. Silvestri made a couple of saves to keep Verona in it. He stopped Kurtic in the 54th minute and Brugman in the 84th minute. Meanwhile Verona's struggles as far as player personnel continued. Matteo Lovato left early in the match with an injury. Verona are already pretty depleted at the back having sold Amir Rachmani and Marash Kumbula. Verona also really missed the presence of Samuel Di Carmine up top. Di Carmine is a big target that can hold up play. So in the end Parma picked up their first win and Verona suffered their first loss. So that completes our review of match day 3. That will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5 star rating on your favorite podcast platform. If you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5 or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. We'll be back later in the week with our second episode of the week. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre!
Sports Social Podcast Network.